Hi there, and welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. My name is Tiasha Zaitz, and today we're not exactly going to dive into digital health, but a topic that might greatly influence the medical device industry. I'm talking about stem cells and regenerative medicine. The idea behind regenerative medicine is to enable medicine to use the human cells as therapies. This means that instead of using artificial joints and other implants we currently use for healing, we could use cells that would regenerate our own tissues. According to the World Economic Forum, the current market for stem cell therapies is growing at 36% per year and will rapidly expand when a breakthrough treatment for non-communicable disease or a lifestyle factor occurs. The research space is very vibrant. However, Apart from the field of hematology, where stem cell transplantation is used for the treatment of leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma, other treatments are not yet routinely used or necessarily even approved. Unfortunately, however, because of the potential and promise of regenerative medicine, over 700 clinics in the U.S., in 2019 offered expensive stem cell therapy claiming it can heal anything from knee pain, asthma, congestive heart failure, Parkinson's disease, and more. Let me repeat, these claims are not scientifically proven. But sometimes patients run out of options. Their condition is so serious that they would give anything just to get a chance at survival or quality of life improvement. This is also why stem cell clinics have clients that are willing to pay a lot to see a glimpse of improvement. It can cost them a lot more than just money. In a comprehensive article, the BBC reported that at least 17 patients were hospitalized in 2019 in the US after umbilical cord blood injections. The Centers for Disease Control confirmed a series of bacterial infections. Most of these patients were treated at orthopedic, chiropractor and pain clinics and were given injections into their spines, knees and shoulders. Cell therapies are a very broad field with stem cells just a segment of it. There are a lot of futuristic ideas as to where cell therapy can go. And if you remember, in 2019, Israeli researchers presented the first 3D-printed heart with cells and blood vessels. Someday in the future, we will hopefully see 3D-printed tissues and organs. To see where we are today, I spoke with Professor Frank Berry, 
senior scientist at the UHN Arthritis Program at the Kremlin Research Institute and professor of cellular therapy at the Regenerative Medicine Institute of the National University of Ireland, Galway. His research interests include stem cell biology and the development of cell-based repair strategies for osteoarthritis. In a career that has spanned both industry and academic research, he has contributed to the fields of tissue engineering and regenerative medicine by developing innovative and cellular therapies for tissue repair, joint injury, and arthritic disease. Dr. Barry also plays an important part in the Arte Interact project, which is dedicated to introducing novel cell therapies based on mesenchymal stem cells into orthopedic hospitals in Slovenia and Italy. If you will enjoy the show, do subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your shows, either iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean or elsewhere. And to learn more about the show, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Now let's dive into the field of stem cells. Frank, I want to start with a quote. Someday, stem cells will be enlisted to help repair or replace damaged tissues and organs. They will rescue us from diseases for which drugs can only treat the symptoms. But they may have another role in our lives, one that is not so beneficial. They may in fact be the source of some and possibly most cancers. End of quote. This is the introductory statement about stem cells on the Harvard Stem Cell Institute's website. So for starters, how good or how bad are stem cells? In the first instance, I would say that it's not a question of someday because it's it's already happening. Uh, stem cells are being used very widely uh, to... Um, treat a number of very serious diseases. The results are very good. Um, and there are several authorized products which are on the market already involving cell therapy or stem cell therapy. And so the story is looking very good right now. There are hundreds of clinical trials going on also. So we can see a progressive increase in the availability of new treatments um, for severe or difficult to treat conditions and I think that's a very optimistic situation. In relation to the idea that stem cells have a dark side and that they can cause uh, potentially cause cancers that's always a concern. Um, In many ways the idea of a stem cell being capable of giving rise to different tissue types um, would foster the idea that um, it could cause tumor formation. In practice however this is rarely or uh, almost never observed. So what we understand so far is that the profile of safety of stem cell treatment is very, very good. 
and the dark side isn't as um, worrying as we once thought it was. The field of uh, cell therapies is broad. You know, we've got CAR-T uh, therapies for immunotherapy. So I wonder how big is the field of stem cell regenerative medicine research inside the whole cell therapy space? The discipline of regenerative medicine is on the point of exploding. It, it's a whole new paradigm of medical treatment. It involves cell therapy and gene therapy. Uh, you know, as an industry sector, it's growing really rapidly. So it's set to become very significant. It'll be a huge industry. It'll be disruptive because it will put out of business many of the more traditional medical technologies. And um, I think we'll see an enormous economic growth associated with this field in the next, say, 10 years. The World Economic Forum is predicting that the current market for stem cell therapies is growing at 36% per year. Can you mention a few, not products, but things that the companies and the industry is addressing and trying to solve? Probably one of the most exciting aspects of this uh, that we've seen in, in recent years is the development of CAR-T therapies. These are very specific cellular therapies where the patient's own cells are taken, the patient's own immune cells are taken, genetically modified, essentially to weaponize those cells, and then they're transplanted back into the patient where the cells can attack and kill tumor cells. And this uh, has turned out to be very effective in treating certain cancers which were previously essentially untreatable. And there's a number of products on the market currently which are having a huge impact, and that's an area of, of significant growth. In other examples, autoimmune diseases such as Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease are being treated by cellular therapy, by stem cell treatments, and, and this is really quite effective also. And these are just a couple of examples of what, I, as I said, will be an explosion um, over the next few years. CAR T cells that we've mentioned twice uh, already, that's a different type. They're not stem cells, and, and I, I, I suppose we, we don't attach ourselves as much to the term stem cells as we used to uh, previously. So CAR T cells are essentially adult cells. They're, they're cells taken from the patient himself or herself. They're taken from the blood. They're part of the, um, the they're the cells that make up the immune system, so-called T cells. So no, they're not stem cells. Um, in fact, they're adult cells. But they're, um, as I said, they're manipulated to make them, um, to allow them to target the Tumor. So this kind of therapy is kind of a combination of cell therapy and gene therapy because it involves the cells, but it also involves genetically modifying those cells to make them effective. So it's a combination cell gene therapy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think it, it's uh, sensible to, before we continue, clarify the basics around stem cells. Uh, roughly, there are three types of stem cells embryonic, umbilical cord, and adult stem cells. And embryonic stem cells are, quote-unquote, the most powerful because they are pluripotent. This means that they can develop to all of the cell types that make up the human body. Umbilical cord stem cells are younger adult stem cells. 
And the third uh, are the adult stem cells, also called the somatic stem cells, that are found in organs and tissues. They can self-renew and yield the differentiated cell types comprising that of organs or tissues. Probably the most known is the bone marrow tissue, but the interesting thing is that adult stem cells are also derived from the adipose tissue, so the human fat, and obviously there's other tissue sources. Can you briefly outline research areas of each cell type? I assume that the field of embryonic stem cells is the smallest because of the ethical concerns. Embryonic stem cells do have the most potency. They're 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 pluripotent and they can give rise to every every cell type. Um, they are the least tested in terms of therapeutic application. Part of that is because of the ethical concerns about the procurement of embryonic stem cells. But there's another part to this story as well, which is the following: um, about ten years ago, a Japanese scientist called uh, Yamanaka was able to devise a method of turning an ordinary adult cell into a cell that had the characteristics of an embryonic stem cell. Uh, he did this by genetically modifying the cells by the introduction of certain factors. So turning a skin cell, an ordinary skin cell, into a pluripotent stem cell. And he called these induced pluripotent stem cells. And these have had a huge impact on the field so far. So most of the effort now focuses on these induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs rather than on the embryonic stem cells. Um, and there's a great deal of interest currently in looking at these cells also um, as new medicines. It's um, understandably at an earlier stage compared to the adult stem cells, but nonetheless, it's a field that's progressing very rapidly. Um, in the case of the bone marrow stem cells, you're absolutely right. The, 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 sorry, in the case of the umbilical cord, um, you're, you're quite right about this. This is a rich source of stem cells because the umbilical cord blood essentially provides the um, blood cells for the, um, um, for the newborn baby. And uh, these cells have a great deal of potential and have been used clinically, I would say, since the 1950s or 60s the first umbilical cord blood transplants took place and they were successful, especially in patients that suffer from severe types of leukemia. Um, so that's a very important aspect of all of this. And then thirdly, the adult stem cells or tissue stem cells, we sometimes refer to them, which are isolated from bone marrow, fat tissue, but also from many other um, sources, um, uh, many other tissues in the body. And these are probably at the forefront of therapeutic testing right now because they're relatively easy to obtain, they're easy to grow, and so there has been a huge focus of intensive effort throughout the world in looking at these cells um, in terms of their ability to treat different diseases. I find it interesting that they are found in the adipose tissue, so the human fat, which I guess in the modern culture is considered as something very negative. You know, nobody wants to have too much of that. It's actually quite fascinating, but the cells are very clearly available from, uh, or they, they can be isolated from fat tissue. 
So if you're undergoing a stem cell treatment or a treatment involving adult stem cells, quite often they'll be taken from either a bone marrow biopsy or from a liposuction. It turns out that the bone marrow biopsy is pretty uncomfortable. So nowadays people generally feel that the liposuction is more comfortable. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's less unpleasant. It only requires quite a small amount of fat tissue to provide the cells that are needed uh, therapeutically. So yeah, that, that, that does work very well. And the quality, quote unquote, is the same or the usability of cells, either if they're taken from the bone marrow or the, the fat? There are some biological differences that are not major, but in essence, the quality is the same. There are situations where getting the fat-derived uh, cells is a bit more challenging. For example, in uh, individuals who are very thin or, or athletes who have very little subcutaneous fat, uh, it can prove challenging to harvest enough tissue to isolate the cells. But in general, the cells from both sources are uh, by and large the same. For a while, it was very fashionable to save umbilical cord cells to protect the future of the children parents have. So do you know what happened with that trend? Maybe about 15 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago, uh, there was a huge amount of debate going on across the world about the idea of cord blood banking whereby parents were persuaded to save the umbilical cord blood after their baby was born. And the idea was that this blood would contain life-saving stem cells that could be stored maybe for many years and then used to treat the baby, now as an adult, or a sibling. And it became a kind of a cynical commercial operation whereby the cord blood banks were charging a lot of money um, to harvest the, the the tissue and then an annual fee to keep it stored. And it turned out also that the number of times where that cord blood, banked cord blood was drawn on to treat one of those um, children uh, was very, very little. So it kind of faded away um, and was more driven, I think, by profit than by very strong science. And um, although cord blood transplant is a very important part of all of this, but the large-scale banking of your baby's blood isn't really a necessary way to do this. I still remember uh, when I was researching this 10 years ago for an article that uh, one of the medical experts said that, yes, these cells have tremendous potential, but if parents are considering it, the best way to do it is to put them in the public bank because in that way, it, there's a higher chance that they're actually going to help someone. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true because they can be matched um, to a non-related recipient and that's a better way of doing it. But, you know, it did become a sort of a private industry, um, a for-profit sector, and um, it ended up that parents were spending a lot of money. They were being subjected to quite heavy, you know, selling um, um, uh, sales kind of pitches in order to do this. So a lot of the gynecologists or the obstetricians, the medical teams who were looking after the, uh, the, the mothers were very um, opposed to this because they saw it as being essentially kind of manipulating um, parents 
at a time when they were very vulnerable. Uh, does the fact that this trend has boiled down, does that impact the supplies in public banks of these cells? Because they are important for, for many patients. No, I, d I don't think so. And it's now in the hands of the professionals, you know, the hematologists and the medical professionals who know how to do this. They know how to build these banks and it's being done by them, um, uh, you know, as part of a practice of medicine rather than as a commercial practice. And so I think it's probably even better now than it was back in those days. The adult stem cells have firmly occupied the attention of orthopedic clinicians and scientists for most of the last 25 years. We are, however, still not on the finish line where stem cell therapy would be routinely used for, let's say, knee replacement. So what is the state of research at the moment? 25 years is quite a period. I'm very glad you asked this question because this is the area that I've been most involved in um, over the years. The idea that these cells, um, stem cells, can be used to treat arthritic disease. And um, it's an ongoing story. Um, there have been a number of clinical trials They have shown very interesting results, quite positive results. And all that we know so far suggests that this treatment is effective in either slowing down or reversing the progression of arthritic disease. The problem is that the clinical trials are still not big enough to have the statistical significance um, that you would need um, as with any new medicine or any new drug. You have to do large-scale phase three clinical trials. We're not yet at that point. But so far, and it, it, it takes a very long time, but so far, from what we can see, things look quite good, but we still have a ways to go. So why is that? Why are clinical trials small, given that uh, arthritis is something a lot of people are facing? It's one of the questions that I find most difficult to 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 answer. You're absolutely right. Arthritis is very common. Osteoarthritis is the most common form of arthritis. It's the most debilitating musculoskeletal disease. It has an enormous impact on patients, on their families, on their quality of life, on their income, and it has a huge burden on healthcare systems because so many uh, procedures have so much, so much hospital resources are used to treat patients with arthritic disease. And having, despite all of that, of course, there isn't any drug, there isn't any medicine, any therapeutic intervention of any kind that it will reverse this disease. Uh, once you get it, uh, the only treatment you can avail of is joint replacement surgery, which is quite a serious uh, operation. So there's a very, very strong, compelling need simply on the basis of health economics, quality of life and so on. A very strong imperative for developing new treatments for for these kinds of diseases, and so we believe that stem cell treatment is um, a very attractive option. The problem is we have to do these trials ourselves. You know, we don't have multinational pharmaceutical companies or multinational biotech companies um, or medical device companies coming in to do these trials. Um, we have to do them ourselves. So we have to raise all the funding. Uh, we have to raise all the Uh, research grants to pay all the hospital costs for the trials to happen. That's why it's taking a long time, because it's essentially the academic researchers who are driving this um, and have been for the last number of years. 
That's why we've been doing this for so long and we're still not done. I think you kind of just said that there's not enough of funding. So I wonder um, how much do initiatives like ARTE contribute to the progress? Are government-funded programs bringing progress or are they just helping solve partial questions without having a lasting impact? Because unfortunately, that is how research looks like. It's uh, something gets funded, the research is done, but it's not connected to other research, you know, so there's not a cumulative effect in the end. I really like the choice of word you just used, uh, uh, connected, because that's the key here. So I think that government funding is having a very strong impact and especially European Union funding. The European Union decided some time ago to put a lot of money available for supporting clinical trials in regenerative medicine. And that's, that was very, very important. That has been the driver of everything that we've been doing for the last um, 10 years or so. The problem is that these efforts are not connected. They're fragmented. And if it were possible to come up with a really well-joined-together initiative where we are all part of the same large-scale project. We have the Adipoe 2 clinical trial, which is going on here. You have the Arte trials, which are going on there. If we could somehow join them all together to make a really large, statistically significant, impactful study, that would be really phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I wonder... Given the fact that uh, stem cells, if they became a standard of practice, they would very much uh, impact the medical device industries. S some surgeries for knee replacements perhaps would not be uh, needed anymore. There's the whole in, um, implants industry that might uh, have to find a different solution to offer to the patients. So two questions there. And the first one is... To which extent uh, are you connected or are aided by the industry? Is there any support from the industry? And at the same time, sometimes researchers or clinicians don't like to uh, work with the industry because it does have a motive that researchers might not be interested in, and that's profit. I think it's simply impossible to make progress in this area without working with industry. And so the idea of, you know, an academic scientist not wanting to work with a company, that that's old fashioned and, and, and I think it, it, it's not relevant anymore. We have to be able to partner with industry to get done the things that we need to do because we need um, access to the resources that they can, they can provide. So I think it's very important for uh, you know, research, um, academic research, industry, research alliances to uh, to move all of this forward. Um, there are some examples of where this has happened in the past and it's been successful, but I really think these are the keys to, uh, to success in this area. Did you have any negative uh, experiences with the industry? Yes, there sometimes if you're dealing, if you're working with a large multinational corporation, decisions are made, you know, someplace very far away. And sometimes decisions are made in an unpredictable or unexpected way. So, you know, in a, in a corporate sector, you have to put up with that. Um, what you said about the medical device sector and the orthopedic implant sector is very, very interesting because what we're trying to do is potentially strongly disruptive towards the implant sector. 
a lot of orthopedic surgeons and a lot of um, companies will be unenthusiastic about what we're doing because essentially it'll impact the practice that they are engaged in right now. But still, it's um, it's still very important. I was actually just uh, wondering uh, regarding that, you know, the the impact on the medical device industry because materials are improving for implants. So there's a lot of players in the field already. Yeah, it's it's important to bear in mind that now, you know, total hip replacement surgery or total knee replacement or other types of joint replacement surgery, they are incredibly successful. Um, the materials that they have access to and the design of these implants are really spectacular. The surgical approaches are much simpler and quicker than they used to be. So sometimes these are done almost on an outpatient basis um, or a one to two day hospital stay. And they're very successful. They're life changing for the patients because they go almost immediately from, uh, you know, a situation of chronic pain and loss of function to a situation where the pain is gone and they're joints work much more, um, uh, um, are, are much improved. So this type of surgical procedure is very successful and there's no denying that. And, you know, it's impossible to argue against that. But nonetheless, these surgeries generally happen in the context of chronic disease. So in other words, the patients have had years and years of pain, uh, poor joint function before they have the joint replacement surgery. Whereas what we're doing will have an impact much earlier on. So they won't have to experience those years of chronic pain that they uh, that they currently do. Which brings the question of affordability. Do you think that the protocols regarding when is a patient eligible for such a therapy are going to be kind of turned into the direction of price? The thing I wonder is when stem cell treatments will be available, are they going to be available only to those that will be able to afford it? And the rest, especially in public systems, where price is important when deciding about treatment as well, you might end up with not the most optimal solution Um, on the market. I think you've touched on a really important point because currently the technology that we use and the manufacturing protocols that we use are much too expensive. So the cost of producing a a, a therapeutic dose of stem cells is much, much higher than it should be for effective market penetration. And so we need to bring those costs down um, very significantly. It has to be affordable in such a way that, you know, if you're talking about osteoarthritis, where there are in Europe, you know, literally millions of patients. So the treatment has to be priced at a point which allows all of those patients to be treated. So the costs have to be brought down probably to less than 10% of what they currently are. You mentioned before that uh, knee replacement surgeries and implants are very successful and can dramatically change the quality of life of some patients. So I wonder, in the research and trials that have been done with stem cells so far, how fast is the recovery, how fast do stem cell treatments work? Um, Based on what we know so far, the impact of the cell treatment is very, very rapid. So we've seen in the clinical trials that we've carried out that when the patients receive a stem cell injection into their knee, um, within 24 hours, they have an improved pain outcome. They experience less pain than, than before the injection 
And this effect appears to be sustained, you know, for a long period of time. And then within about one week of the stem cell injection, the patients have an improved knee function. So there seems to be, uh, you know, a therapeutic effect that's fairly rapid and also sustained. Um, but it, as I mentioned earlier, it's very important that we treat more and more patients and follow up those patients very carefully in order to understand that this is a real observation. So, you know, we need the bigger clinical trials. Mm -hmm. the, the research around stem cells is old. I think it's fair to say that if we look at just uh, the, the bone marrow research and things like that, it's basically 80 years old when the first uh, things were discovered. So I really wonder how has technology shaped the whole research space? Usually technology brings down the cost of uh, innovation. So is that something that we can hope for also in terms of the pricing for uh, the stem cell therapies? Um, yes, is the answer to that question. And um, we're seeing that more and more now um, where there's, you know, very significant advances in the technology that we use for growing these cells up. Um, very significant advances in how we store the cells, um, how we ship them from the factory to the clinic. All of these are um, um, benefiting from new advances in technology. And we do see that the price is coming down um, more and more something positive to look forward to. We mentioned a lot of uh, positive things and optimistic things. I do want to highlight, though, that there is a lot of misleading information in the public around stem cells. Officially, they are approved and used in hematology for the treatment of leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, but it's, it's also approved in some countries for chemical burns for the eyes. However, there are a number of stem cell clinics offering therapies for other indications as well. Um, and the, the list of things that uh, these clinics claim they can solve is really, really huge. By, by 2018, there were over 432 US-based businesses at 716 clinics engaged in direct-to-consumer marketing of stem cell treatment. And in a comprehensive report last year, the BBC reported that at least 17 patients were hospitalized in 2019 in the United States after umbilical cord blood injections. And the reasons were that the CDC confirmed a series of bacterial infections and just a lot of neglecting actions. So how far do you think uh, this this is developing and how can, can it be prevented? This has been a very serious and negative aspect of the stem cell field um, for a number of years. The idea that in, you know, in cities, on street corners and in high streets, um, uh, people set up clinics offering stem cell treatments for a whole variety of different conditions. And they were doing this without having any evidence as to whether the cells would work or not to treat those conditions, without having any regulatory oversight of how they produced and handled the cells. So it was a complete sort of maverick industry, the for-profit stem cell clinics. And they did a huge amount of damage. Um, the example you just cited of the uh, 
patients that received the, the, that that um, received the infected stem cell transplants. There were other examples of patients who were treated for retinal disease, you know, blindness. Their retinas were seriously damaged by the stem cell treatment. There was an example of a patient that received a stem cell treatment for spinal cord injury and ended up with a very significant tumour, all because these were being done in unregulated, um, unproven private clinics where the patients were being charged um, a lot of money. So this for-profit sector uh, did a huge amount of damage to the field. The good news, however, is that certainly in the US and Canada, the Food and Drug Administration in the US and Health Canada in Canada have both clamped down very strongly on these clinics offering stem cell treatments and many of them, very many of them has, have closed and that's just happened in the last two years. The only problem is that, as you mentioned before we started this discussion, is that some of these stem cell clinics or providers are now moving to the countries where regulation is still not in place. Yep, that's exactly what's happening. So, you know, some countries in the Caribbean or maybe Central America are now where these clinics are because they're not under the oversight of the regulatory authorities in from the US, then that's that's what they do and patients fly there to have these treatments. And it's a very bad idea. I think uh, a patient is exposing himself or herself to very significant risk if they go to receive a stem cell treatment from an unregulated, unauthorized clinic for treating a condition where there's no evidence. And how can a patient know that that's the case? Because clinics, obviously, with their marketing skills, will claim they've got everything covered from the regulatory perspective. And let's not even talk about the claims regarding efficiency. You know, that's a very um, important and, and you know, um, difficult point to address. Because, of course, you know that if you're if you're very sick and there are no treatments available, you're essentially going to try anything. You, you know, you'll have a sense of desperation, you'll want to try anything. If a family member is suffering from a condition and there is no treatment available, also you'll want to try anything. So patients and their families, because of the desperation that they feel, they literally go to the four corners of the world to look for treatments that they think might be effective. And that's that's very understandable. Uh, it's just, it's a human response to try and do everything that you can. Um, but to take a treatment, um, from an unregulated clinic where there isn't sufficient evidence to support its use is a very, very dangerous thing to do. And the examples that we talked about earlier are, um, um, are, are indications of, of the importance of that point. Plus they're very, very expensive. Some of these clinics charge phenomenal amounts of money. So patients and their families end up losing huge amounts of money for treatments, which at the very best have no effect and at worst have significant um, negative side effects. Based on your research, how far are we still from stem cell therapies being routinely used in the regulated and approved manner? It's happening right now. So in Europe, there's a... Uh, Stem cell treatment approved for the treatment of Crohn's disease, that they're happening at a relatively slow pace, but that pace has to kind of um, increase um, over the next few years. So again, I would say in the five or 10 year time frame, we can see a situation whereby stem cells will be routinely um, given as a treatment option to patients. 
I can even see the time where in the doctor's office there'll be a freezer full of stem cells that'll be taken out to treat a patient, um, you know, very quickly and easily and um, very cheaply. And that's what I think will happen, even though the time it's taking to get to that point is much, much longer than any of us would have anticipated when we started out in this in this uh, work. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned.